0: Good morning, everyone. Welcome. Um, we, we lost a couple of our lights today uh, for uh, technical reasons. So studio looks a little darker today, but we're still here. And it doesn't mean the lights are out for us. I think, uh, in fact, you see a little bit of a Christmas decoration here in the back. Um, it, it's, it's the holidays. And uh, John is going to uh, give us some advice on how to stay safe uh, moving forward. I think he will provide some really, really interesting new information on the, the Moderna vaccine. Um, I can say that uh, I I received the vaccine on Wednesday. It was uh, an exhilarating moment of human ingenuity and triumph. And just to get, uh, you know, those nanoparticles with mRNA uh, within those nanoparticles into into my deltoid. And I know that very quickly, within 24 hours, those nanoparticles were absorbed into cells. uh, And those cells uh, started using my ribosomes uh, to make spike protein. That's just pretty cool. I was thinking about this as it was happening. Uh, And I know today, probably 48 hours later, I have a lot of spike protein that is uh, being gobbled up by dendritic cells and macrophages. Those dendritic cells and macrophages are going to my lymph nodes right now to begin generating antibodies that hopefully will peak within the next eight weeks, uh, actually the next uh, eight days, frankly. Uh, to begin uh, protecting me from uh, COVID-19 so I can get my second booster. So pretty cool. I mean, actually, you think about this. I mean, it's just remarkable that in such a short period of time, we can take 0.3 mls, uh, which was, were given to me by, by my mentor and colleague, Doug McGillpin. That was really exciting. Um, and who else better than to give a vaccine than a pediatrician, pediatrician seasoned pediatrician, who was given thousands of these vaccines. So I could not have been in better hands. Uh, All of you will be getting the vaccine. All healthcare team members uh, are uh, scheduled to get the vaccine by the end of January. So if you haven't gotten the notice yet, you will be getting it uh, through either this organization or the NuVan system or whichever organization you're affiliated to to get the vaccine. So I encourage you to to get it. Uh, I had a little bit of soreness. That was it. Nothing else. I was able to shovel snow yesterday without any problem. And uh, and I feel great today. So uh, as far as I'm concerned, it was a pretty benign situation and with just great hope. Now, this morning, we have uh, John, who's going to give us uh, a lot of information about the Moderna vaccine and the approval for the Moderna vaccine. And then we're going to shift to Chris Corcoran from OCCH, who will tell us about healthy homes. This is such an important part of what we do with with COVID-19 and, and just keeping people safe. And, uh, you know, these things have to continue. And, and I think you'll hear a lot about the support that Connecticut Children's is giving the community with the assistance from the federal government with the dollars that are coming in to keep uh, our families safe. So without uh, further ado, I'm going to ask John to uh, go ahead and, uh, and begin his uh, wonderful presentation to learn about Moderna vaccine. John, go ahead.
1: Uh, good morning, Juan. Uh, it's great to be here. Um, and welcome Connecticut, Massachusetts, and other states. Uh, I found out last week that uh, some local non-healthcare provider individuals are also watching these talks, and uh, welcome to you as well. Uh, It was Hanukkah last night. Happy Hanukkah to those who celebrate Merry Christmas coming up, and Happy New Year, because we won't see you until after the New Year's next. Um, We have a lot to talk about today. If you can go ahead to the first slide, um, and, uh, this is kind of where we are. We are in a five-alarm fire in the United States, no question about it. Um, if you don't believe it, uh, I, I remember showed you last week a single nursing home in Berkshire County, an hour north, had 30 deaths. That's now 40 deaths in one building, in one county with 100,000 people. I don't think it's ever happened before, even in natural disasters in the county. So, um, However, you can see the helicopters dropping. Uh, the uh, anti-fire material, and those are our vaccines. And so we will get to a better place. But right now, uh, the next 60 days are gonna be rough. Next. So um, let's look at holiday travel. You can see uh, on this graph, that's the Thanksgiving peak. So we were actually kind of, I wouldn't say we got under control, but we were sort of getting it down uh, in late November. And then 6 million people got on airplanes and cars and whatever, and now we're in the second peak, which is more than 200,000 cases a day. It's just it's just remarkable. I, I would look at this and your belly sinks when you see this. But we're starting to blunt it a little bit. So if everybody gets on a plane again, uh, we're gonna have a surge on a surge. We'll be at 250,000 cases a day. So uh, you know, everyone needs to look at this and be sobered. Our individual behaviors matter. Next. Uh, there are over 100, I think it's 120,000 people now uh, hospitalized in the United States. Um, you may have learned that Southern California has no ICU beds. I mean, there's 20 million people there. I don't know exactly what people think is going to happen, but there's going to be triaging and more death. So uh, this is not a sustainable curve. The United States will run out of ICU beds as a country. Um, So, again, a remarkable and very sobering curve. Everyone needs to look at this and remember that our individual behavior, whether it's a mask or getting on a plane, matters. Every bed we might take up if we get sick uh, is going to be a problem in this country. Next. The deaths are uh, 9-11 every day. Um, It is what it is. Uh, Again, I find it remarkable that Uh, There seems to be very little national action on this other than the vaccines, which really won't get us to where we need to go till March or April. So uh, this is an enormous challenge and um, all of us in the public health community and and all of you out there look at this and and feel a little helpless, but we're not. Um, Our behaviors matter, guiding our community and the correct behavior, reducing travel and getting immunized, will all begin to get this down but it's gonna take hard work. No one's gonna do this for us. Next. Connecticut uh, kind of stabilized in a couple of counties, but uh, Hartford and New Haven continue to be strong hotspots. And uh, keep watching on Litchfield. There are very few ICU beds up there, and that's you know, four or five times worse than it was in the, uh, it's a rural area, worse than it was in the first peak. So Connecticut's got some challenges. These are big numbers and uh, it varies it was six percent test positivity and then it was eight percent so it's probably in the seven to eight percent test positivity maybe higher in connecticut which is a lot so um, this should be sobering and and again should guide our behavior as we um, hopefully do not go out and about next So um, the surge in Connecticut, you can see at one day we had 8,000 cases, but we're running around 4,000, 5,000. It's a huge number of new cases. And our deaths have lagged, but you can see, as always, they do lag a few weeks and are starting to shoot up and probably will hit 100 to a couple hundred a day at its worst in about four or five weeks. So um, sobering statistics in Connecticut. Next. This is our hospitalized patients uh, gonna be around 1400. It was 1800, 2000 or so in the first wave. We're we're probably gonna hit that and our ICU beds are gonna be taxed. So again, everybody who doesn't get sick and doesn't have to take up a bed, it's it's a very big deal for us in Connecticut right now. Uh, Remember when the ICUs are filled, very difficult decisions start getting made about who lives and who dies. These are not decisions that any doctor, nurse, anybody wants to make, uh, let alone a family. So let's, let's keep watch on this. Next. Now, there are, t- there are states in much worse shape, which is also sobering I mean, Connecticut. We're bad, but this is Tennessee. I mean, these are three times uh, the number of new cases per 100,000 that we're seeing in Connecticut. I mean, it's unbelievable. They're having 10,000 cases a day in Tennessee right now and uh, 3,000 people in the hospital. And it's not sustainable. I mean, the state doesn't have enough hospital beds. So I think, you know, again, this is where leadership matters. The federal government has abrogated their leadership. They're not creating any model for the governors. The governors need to step in and make some very hard decisions. And yes, there'll be some economic damage, but you will save lives, and then we can open everything up. The sooner the pandemic is controlled, the better the economy gets. So I I look at this, and um, you sort of shake your head. And although Connecticut's tough right now, and New England is tough, Massachusetts We are not nearly in trouble as much as Tennessee is. Next. Now Rhode Island uh, continues to be among the very worst the United States don't travel there. Um, This changed since last week. You may remember it was one in 20 infected. Now it's one in 14 people in Rhode Island have been infected and one in 675 have died. I mean these are unbelievable statistics and uh, I think uh, again uh, require drastic action in that state. Next. Now let's look at a success story and try to understand why, because this could have been a national model. Vermont has the least COVID in the United States. And I, I did a deep dive why? I mean, what did they, okay, they're rural, they're only 600,000 people, it's a Republican governor, right? They should be like South Dakota. Not true. So this is what they did. First off, they realized that the vulnerable we're spreading the disease. And those are homeless and elderly. And so what they did is they shut down all the homeless shelters and they gave vouchers to every homeless person to get into a hotel or a motel so they could be isolated and not spread it around. They gave hazard pay for essential workers. There's free pop-up testing and lots of rural areas so you can get tested easily and free. They gave meal deliveries to elderly and vulnerable areas. Um, They kept nursing homes very strictly locked down so they wouldn't have these terrible outbreaks that we're seeing in Massachusetts and Connecticut. Uh, They gave very consistent messaging to the population about what public health measures needed to do, what you needed to do as a person. There was no confusion and conspiracy and and, uh, posturing by the politicians. And a lot of schools and shops remain open. Um, so, and they also had a lot to lose. They have the least ICU beds per capita in the United States. So they knew they could not afford an outbreak that other States were seeing. This didn't have the hospital beds. This is the same population as the Dakotas and they have exactly the opposite result. So again, my, in my dreams, it's too late now, but in my dreams, a national model looking at this, cause this works of how you could manage nationally to sort of knock this down These are areas, and they focused on the vulnerable, uh, but they also had very consistent messaging to get compliance for public health measures. So this is the success. Uh, Unfortunately, it was not adopted across the United States, but this shows us what we could do. Next. Now, the USA pandemic deaths are probably gonna reach 500,000. I say that number and uh, it rolls off my tongue uh, to give you perspective, the United States military in World War II lost 407,316 t- to military death. World War II, and that was 1941 to 1945. So we we are probably going to exceed that shortly, and uh, and um, I, yeah, I think history will look on this as one of the greatest natural disasters in United States history. Next. Now, travel for the holidays. Um, Don't. What can I say? Um, I'll be less Tony Fauci today, a little more adamant. He tends to be very diplomatic. Don't travel. Don't make another peak. Don't get the ICUs filled. You won't get sick if you don't travel. And the, the advice I just got a text message from the Massachusetts Department of Public Health saying don't travel. Stay in your household for the holidays. So stay in your own household. Don't have visitors. Don't go to other households. You won't get sick. Your family won't get sick. Your neighbors won't get sick. If you're working in a hospital, you'll be able to keep working, and your team will have people. <clears throat> you won't take up a bed in a hospital. Critical, and people won't die because of it. So let's not make another holiday surge. It pains me to do this. Uh, you know, I was on. I've been doing FaceTime with our grandson every night. It's painful, but this is what needs to happen until we have her immunity from the vaccine. Next. What's new? There's some fascinating data I'm going to share. Next. So, first off, you remember that Denmark had a huge outbreak in their mink farms, and they chose to um, euthanize the entire industry. There was a reason to do this. They didn't want it to get out into other animals, and they saw mutations occurring in the mink that potentially would render the vaccine and monoclonals um, obsolete. So, Unfortunately, in the United States, we have not done that. Um, and now we have spread of COVID to wild mink. And they picked up one wild mink. They did a survey around a mink farm in Utah, and it's in the wild mink population. So we've now flipped COVID to potentially a zoonotic disease. Now, human exposure to mink in the wild is pretty limited. So you know they're not going to you know, run into the cities and cause new COVID infections. But this is very sobering, and we do not want COVID to become rooted in other animals that have contact with humans, you know, raccoons, for example. So we're gonna to, to watch this very closely. And, and again, in my view, this should not have been allowed to happen. Next. Um, new data in children. And this is something that may change how we manage even children who are mildly ill, you know, maybe they should be anticoagulated. It's not clear yet, but these are intriguing data. What they found was that there was evidence of thrombotic microangiopathy in children uh, with SARS-CoV-2, but even those who were minimally infected, they didn't get very sick. And these are complement levels that are linked to um, thrombotic microangiopathy. It's really a marker, elevated complement of C5B9. And they found on on my left, you can see in minimal disease, it's elevated. But with Missy, it's highly elevated, but it's statistically elevated even in minimal kids who are not that sick. Now, AKI is acute kidney injury and um, it it was linked to um, acute kidney injury. So we need to watch this. And this is the anxiety that many have that in fact, silent infection with uh, SARS-CoV-2 is actually not silent and is giving downstream damage. We need to watch this closely and we may need to evaluate whether we mildly anticoagulate even well children who've been infected. I can't answer that yet, not enough data, but these are all questions that people are beginning to question, think about. This is brand new, came out December 8th. Next. Now, good news, this is, I'm gonna talk more about the Moderna vaccine, which is another mRNA vaccine. But Moderna actually has been publishing a lot of stuff in New England Journal. Pfizer did not. And I actually find this refreshing because they're subjecting their data to peer review. So in this study, 34 subjects were given two doses of Moderna vaccine. And the duration of immunity was really good. And, and it's still going on. They want to carry this out four months. And you can see at all ages, these are, a lot, these are measurement of uh, antibody titer and neutralization titer. And you can see at four months, which is the far 119 days, there's lots of immunity still, and even in the elderly, more than 71 age uh, age on the far bottom. So the vaccine is lasting at least four months. It'll probably be an it'll probably be an annual vaccine if, if covid uh, two hangs around. But this is good news, and I, I think it re- makes us relax just a little bit. This is not going to be a 90 day vaccine. Next. Now, um, someone asked me and uh, um, asked our team about monoclonals. Um, We have two monoclonals, they are here. Uh, This particular monoclonal was single epitope, but we also have the Regeneron one. And uh, it's very restricted in that um, the emergency use authorization, you have to meet these criteria. If, If for children, it's 12 to 17 years old who are more than 40 kilos and have risk factors which are listed here. However, if you have, and and it's uh, not inpatient, you must be mildly ill, not need oxygen yet, but be high risk um, and ambulatory. This is not gonna be used in the hospital. If you have someone like that contact infectious disease at uh, Connecticut Children's Hospital, we have a very great, well done clinical pathway uh, by our team and uh, we've done our first case recently and uh, we'll be able to use these monoclonals, but the, Risk fa- uh, the risk factors must be there and the BMI must be there. In addition, uh, you cannot be less than 12 years of age. So that's what we have right now. So the monoclonals are here. We don't have a lot. We have 10 to 15 doses uh, but, and we're using them selectively and high-risk children more than 10 years of age who are more than 40 kilos. Next. Now, Moderna is moving to get the vaccine tested in children. We have a big gap with that. Remember the vaccine from Pfizer last week was licensed from age 16 and above. Moderna only tested 18 18 and above. And I don't know what the license is gonna show. I think it'll be today. Um, But uh, what they're going to do is enroll 3000 participants age range 12 to 17. That's the second paragraph. Uh, And it's gonna be placebo controlled, randomized, a very nice study and that's moving ahead. My hope is, they also begin to move into younger children. But you can see we're just starting this now, which means it'll be next summer before we'll probably have enough data to get full licensure of these vaccines in children, but that's good, that'll be in time for the school year. So things are moving ahead. I wanna reassure you, we're starting to get pediatric data. Hopefully we'll get some younger children too. Uh, That ball has started to roll, next. Now let's talk about the Moderna vaccine. I sat through some of the public hearings yesterday. Um, and again, I would reiterate the process is sound. Uh, data was transparently released a few days earlier where you can download it. Um, they had their uh, group of both public comments and also scientists who were looking at all the data and had a lot of questions from Moderna company representatives and Moderna scientists in the FDA as well. What the data show um, that it's about 94.5% efficacy in preventing clinical infection. Uh, They had a randomized placebo-controlled trial, 30,000 people, 15 in each arm. They had five cases of clinical COVID in the vaccine group and 90 cases in the placebo group. It was highly significant, and their population was 18 and up, but 37% people of color, very diverse. Shipping and storage is easier, it's negative 20 uh, and it will hang around in the fridge for 30 days and be stable uh, and uh, for a full day at room temperature. And uh, it will probably be licensed today. Um, Next, emergency use authorization, let's say that. Now, here are the data that some of the data they showed, these are risk factors and looking at efficacy and you can see if you have chronic lung disease, nobody got sick cardiac disease, severe obesity. And I mentioned this last week, 91% efficacy, not as good, but still very efficacious, but there were some outliers. And so this, this is a risk factor where we need to watch uh, some of the severely obese may not respond to the vaccine optimally. Diabetics, hundred percent protected HIV protected that population should get this vaccine. So, um, again, uh, Fantastic data um, in high risk factor of people. Next. Systemic adverse reactions within a week of the second dose were common. Uh, fever, 17% headache, the majority fatigue and arthralgias are common. Some had nausea and vomiting, a little higher than seen in Pfizer, but I couldn't tease out, was it just feeling nauseous or not? You couldn't figure out it was, you know, what that was entirely. And almost everyone gets a local reaction at the injection site. And by the way, the elderly had less adverse reactions. They didn't respond as as much. So, um, you know, again, typical flu shot kind of uh, adverse reactions. Next. Now, um, very interesting data. Moderna people have been swabbing the noses of people who got immunized. And what they want to see is this trans, does it reduce transmission? These are very preliminary data, but they were presented as an appendix. So these are the asymptomatic infections uh, measured in nasopharyngeal swabs before the second injection of the vaccine. And you can see that those who got the vaccine, there were 14 positive nasal swabs and those who got the placebo 38. Wasn't statistically significant yet, but it's a great it could be great news and that this vaccine might reduce asymptomatic spread, we don't know yet, but it was intriguing data and they're continuing to follow this so hopefully we'll understand this better in the coming months next. Now, because we live in a crazy world right now, the vaccine dis- disinformation industry is now spreading everywhere. And I I looked at one website, Infowars, if you wanna have a laugh, you really should look at this website run by Alex Jones who denies that Newtown happened. Uh, And he is now saying that you will get AIDS if you get the vaccine. It's out there, it's everywhere. What are the facts? The facts are interesting how these got twisted. The facts are an Australian vaccine Used non-infectious protein fragments from HIV to to glue together the spike protein. And they happen to be sticky proteins. I don't know why they chose these, but they did. And in some people in Australia, they got false positive HIV tests because they made antibodies to that little piece of protein that was stuck on the spike protein. So the vaccine has been abandoned. Those are the facts. Has nothing to do with live HIV. Um, And now you will get HIV Uh, if you get the vaccine. So it's out there. It is incorrect. It is disinformation deliberately promulgated uh, by individuals. Next. The next disinformation is really interesting. COVID vaccines are injecting microchips so the government can track you. What are the facts? Turns out that inventory tracking of some of the vials and cases moving around the country have microchips to track them. It's inventory. It's a, myth, you know, it's like a barcode so that, you know, they know where they know where all these vaccines are, right? Did they show up in St. Louis the way they're supposed to? Oh no, they're still on a truck. They can figure that out. It's critical, right? We're national crisis. So this is the size of a microchip that's tracking. Okay. It's what you stick in your dog. Okay. If you have a show dog, that's very expensive. That will not fit in a syringe. Okay. Just look at that. It will not go through a needle. So the facts are a tracking microchip is way too big to inject through a needle. This is not happening, but it's out there and it's, it's circulating on, on a variety of different social media platforms that you will get microchips. It's not possible, it is incorrect. Next. So I'm sticking with the good, the bad, the weird because there are some weird things and uh, Dr. Salazar, that's the good, the bad, the weird. Remember that is a Korean parody on the good, the bad, the ugly. Uh, it got a number of awards. I haven't watched it, I watched a piece of it. It's pretty funny, actually. And this is in Polish. It's very popular. This is the good, the bad, the weird in Polish with English underneath and Korean on the bottom. So uh, again, uh, it is where we are. The USA epidemic shows no signs of peaking and there is no national strategy to mitigate it. It's remarkable. And um, what we can do as individuals, we have the power to slow this down. Don't travel, follow the rules. This will slow down. We have ICU bed shortages uh, all over the country now. Uh, Southern California is in crisis. Um, We're gonna need to watch this very carefully. And the projections now show the potential for 500,000 deaths, which exceed the military deaths of World War II. Now the vaccine era, the good news is remarkably efficacious new vaccines are here. They have arrived, we're immunizing people. Uh, uh, And um, this shows just the remarkable work of scientists, public health, everyone, to really deliver in a crisis situation. It's great news and, and it is the light at the end of the tunnel. Sadly, because of the society we live in today, there's an active vaccine disinformation campaign uh, it has begun in earnest, it's focusing on microchip injections, HIV, and now also infer, you get infertile if you get the vaccine, there are no data to support that claim. These are conspiracy fabrications, and in my view, many of them are malicious. Uh, they are done deliberately, and uh, I think all of us as public health people, or if you're in the community, we need to actively educate people so that this disinformation doesn't become myth that we should follow. So um, again, uh, I wish everyone happy holidays. There's bright light for the holidays and the new vaccines. um, And uh, I do think, as I showed you earlier, next summer, although we'll have some cinders smoldering, I think we'll be in much, much better shape uh, after we immunize, begin to immunize the general population, nursing homes, and other high-risk individuals. Thank you so much for being with me all these weeks. And again, happy holidays to all of you.
0: Thank you, uh, thank you, John, again for an outstanding presentation. And uh, we will have a, a break from this uh, uh, until January 8th. Uh, that we come back, and uh, we have a special guest on January 8th. as going to be Dr. Paul Offit, who's uh, at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and uh, Paul developed the uh, rotavirus vaccine, and he is a world expert. And you've seen him all in, in the news, and uh, uh, Ken Spiegelman was able to. Uh, to ask him to participate, and and Paul has agreed. So January 8th, he's at the level of the, Dr. Fauci, uh, without any doubt. So please log in at that time. Uh, but thank you, John. So we'll move on to uh, to Chris Corcoran. Chris is the program manager for the Connecticut Children's Healthy Homes Program. Uh, he works very closely with clinical and community programs at Connecticut Children's, and uh, his uh, his team helps families across Connecticut to live in a safe and healthy environment. Uh, it emphasizes a collaborative approach with local health departments, code enforcement offices, and community outreach organizations to really help identify families most at risk uh, to live in unsafe substandard housing and offer those families a solution to make their homes safe and healthy. And he's going to share some really important information uh, in the COVID era. So, Chris, go ahead.
2: Thank you, Dr. Salazar, and good morning. Uh, glad to be here this morning to discuss uh, the Healthy Homes Program here at Connecticut Children's and talk to you a little bit about how we have uh, made some adaptations to uh, take into account the uh, COVID situation. So here's the objectives for today. I won't read them, but uh, hopefully at the end of the slides, we'll have a good opportunity to get some questions going and uh, answer any questions related to these objectives. Uh, as uh, Dr. Salazar mentioned, we are part of the Office for Community Child Health, which is uh, 16 programs out in the community uh, trying to help make uh, you know lives for the families and children we serve better. Um, Our program focuses on housing, and we also collaborate with the other programs. So here's a little bit of brief history. You know, it's interesting doing a presentation. Ordinarily, you would say, you know, how many people have heard of Healthy Homes? You look in the audience to see how many people raise their hand, and you kind of adapt. So doing the Zoom-type presentations is different, because I don't have any idea how many of you know of the program. So I do want to go through briefly the program. And then uh, again, uh, talk to you about the changes we've made in light of uh, COVID. So we came to light in 2003, and I should mention right here that the Connecticut Children's Medical Center back in 2003 agreed to take on this project. I don't know if anyone had any idea that by uh, 2020 we would have received $34 million in grants um, and we would have been helping over 3,100 families live in better housing, lead safe housing primarily. Um, But the support of the hospital continues today and it can't be understated because it's not just the financial support that we get, but it's also the support we get from uh, orga- the organization itself. Whether we're looking for helps with our grants office, uh, the billing office, all across the hospital, we have tremendous uh, tremendous help from the, uh, from the hospital so one of the big news uh, items actually came back in 2019 because you'll see here on this slide in previous presentations i would be talking about how we were able to help uh, families and communities across connecticut but only 15 or 17 towns were included and that was difficult because as most of you know if you're in a practice and you're located in glastonbury you may have people from manchester or uh, rocky hill or weathersfield but if i was only able to help people in glastonbury it wouldn't be very helpful so the good news is back in 2019 our service area expanded to the whole state of Connecticut. So now anybody who comes in any practice that has an issue with a healthy homes type uh, problem, we're able to help, which is a huge help because uh, before that it was hard to discern and have a checklist of which towns were available. So here's a brief uh, slide about the healthy home. You know, we don't have any control over affordable through our program, but we certainly have control over the other two items that we consider to be crucial to a healthy home, housing quality, which is what we address through our program directly. Uh, we are going to make homes less safe and healthy by addressing any healthy homes hazards within our budget. And the stability is also an important factor to housing. Uh, we wanna make sure that people are in homes that they wanna stay in because more often children move with their families, the, uh, the, the greater the risk and the greater the impact. So here's a brief description of our core services. Again, this is kind of uh, Healthy Homes 101 because I don't know how many folks know about the program, but uh, the important thing is we are available to uh, families across Connecticut. So when a family applies or a property owner, we take the application in, we give it a ranking score because we want to make sure that we have a a way of making all of the program uh, 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 applicants be able to be considered equally. Um, Once the program reviews the application and gets through some basic compliance documentation, we're going to start to make the uh, assignments out to our relocation staff and also to our staff that go out to the homes to make the inspection. Part of the process is to get the families educated about how to make their home safer and healthier within their own means. And then the other one is the more official when we do a lead inspection and try and identify any health and safety hazards in the home. So the relocation staff are here within the hospital. And they would go into a home, they would meet with the family, sit down across the table, maybe have coffee if it was offered, and they would talk about the different factors that uh, can have an impact on a kid's health and safety in the home. Primarily, again, the program is focused mostly on making homes lead safe. We want to try and find families where there's a kid with an elevated lead level or if we know there's lead paint hazards. But we also look to the other health and safety hazards. So when we're sitting in the home talking to the family, we're able to get a lot of information about what is um, wrong with the home, in their opinion. And then we would be sending our inspectors in. So the inspectors are in charge of going in and following a very careful uh, set of instructions as far as what to look for. And they measure lead paint results. And they look for things like mold in a bathroom or possible asbestos-containing material in the home. Once we have that inspection in hand, we develop a scope of work to make the home safe and healthy. Then we need to send in our contractors. So the contractors, again, are going into the home. The family's relocated during that period of time, and we go ahead and make the home safe and healthy. Uh, A lot of this obviously involves something that's really important, which is getting into the home. And we always talk about the fact that One of the greatest challenges is when we have that door opened and someone's inviting us into their home to sit and talk with them about some things. Sometimes maybe a little self-conscious, the home may not be in the best quality. There may be pests in the home, et cetera. So that's a real milestone that we want to celebrate, but we also want to make sure when we go into the home at that time, we have maximum resources available, whether it's program resources directly from the healthy homes program or ways we can refer people to other services. So the big thing now, of course, is that during COVID, what we're going to see is families and children are going to be inside a lot more. Uh, they're staying at home because it's safer. They're staying at home because the parents are working remotely. They're staying at home because the children are on school remotely. Um, the playgrounds are even restricted to some extent. You can't go play hoops anymore. So you're going to be inside the house instead of being outside uh, playing. Uh, so, you know, not only is it important for us to maintain a focus on making sure that the families are kept safe during the process of our uh, program, but we also want to make sure that the contractors that work for us, our staff, are also kept as safe as possible. And again, though, once we get in that door, we want to maximize resources. Well, of course, now we're not getting inside any doors. No one's inviting us into their home. They shouldn't be invited us into their home because if they're going to follow the advice uh, that everyone's trying to give, you don't want people to come into your home, aren't members of your direct family. So we had to stop for a little bit back in April. Uh, we put a hold on the program as far as doing any visits, as far as doing any inspections. Uh, we decided that we wanted to focus on getting as many of the projects because that compliance part I mentioned is pretty significant. Uh, we do have to get documentation about the ownership of the home, insurance, et cetera, et cetera. So we focused on getting that done. And we also started focusing on how are we going to get back into homes safely, but make sure we're providing the maximum resources to the families we serve. So that's when we decided we had to address a few key things. One, we wanted to make sure that we had uh, the, the, the tenants, occupants of the uh, property. Uh, sometimes we deal with a property that's owner-occupied. It's a single family. That's pretty straightforward. Other times it may be a multifamily where there's an occupant plus a rental. And then there's also just investor properties. So we had to get waivers signed by all occupants. We also let them know that during the inspection process it would be coming, there would only be one adult allowed to be in the home just to make sure we minimize the risk of any contact. Uh, We also had to think about how to rethink our education practices. So our relocation staff, again, I mentioned earlier, meet with the family in the home. You want to sit down in the living room, and it also gives them an opportunity to look around the home and get a sense of what condition is the home in so they can make recommendations for additional services that might be required. So they've gone to a Zoom or phone format. And you know, of course, none of us are happy about being in this pandemic situation and COVID has caused a major disruption across the entire country, across the world. But we have seen some things about COVID that have had uh, a good impact on our program. So for example, where I used to send a relocation staff member maybe from New Haven out to Torrington to do a visit, you know, it's a 40 minute car ride and they've set aside the half of a day to do the visit and they show up at the 10 a.m. appointment that they made and they confirmed the family's like oh my kid doesn't feel well can't see you and they close the door you know it's a lot of wasted time and resources so we have been able to uh, take advantage of COVID um, not COVID (laughs) take advantage of situation so now we're doing it by phone and by Zoom so we're having a lot higher uh, rate of uh, positive or or, um, not as many times where we're being turned away. Um, Also when we would have the contract signing set up we would invite the family and the contractor to 10 Columbus Boulevard here. We would sit across the conference room table, discuss the program, discuss what exactly we're going to do in the home to make it lead safe and healthy. However, that is not possible anymore because, again, we're not having people come into the office. We're not in the office anyways. So we had to uh, think about how to do that. So we're able to now have all of our contracts going through DocuSign. And the other thing that's important for me to mention is that the uh, relocation process, uh, when we're in the home doing the actual construction, When we're making homes lead safe and removing other health and safety hazards we would typically offer families two different ways of getting out of the home we would offer them a cash stipend which would then allow them to just go stay with a family member or we would put them up in a hotel so the uh, the hotels have become a valuable resource for us so that we can relocate the family safely into an environment because there's not as many opportunities for them to be able to relocate to a friend or family's house so you're probably asking yourself, when would it be a good time to refer families? Because you know we are looking to help as many families in Connecticut as possible. Since we've been able to go statewide, it's a tremendous opportunity for any time that you have a family. So if you have a family that's in your home, in, in your office rather, and they're talking about maybe there's some issues with pests in the home or mold perhaps, that's a good time to refer them to us because we can take care of those services through our Healthy Homes component. Obviously, if a kid has an elevated lead level, we want to be able to get in touch with that family as soon as possible and prevent you know, further lead poisoning and try and make the home lead safe. If there's a, uh, maybe talk of health and safety hazards in the home, uh, there's a problem with electrical, maybe there's, you know, there's situations where there may be like extension cords running off an electrical panel, or there's a set of stairs that have been broken for a long time, we want to talk to those families. And I mentioned earlier that we have a tremendous amount of resources throughout the community, not just through the OCCH, but also through the program partners we've been working with for many years. So again, when we go into that home, we've had that door open or the person's on the phone, we want to make sure that we can offer them additional services. So if you have a a family that's having a a struggle maybe with um, asthma management, medication management, there's a program called the Putting on Airs program, and we can refer you to that program or if a family is discussing the fact that their furnace isn't working or they're having a hard time making ends meet because their electric bill is so high because of the heating season, we have a resource we can refer there called Energize Connecticut. And a lot of this is actually being piloted through a really great program uh, that's being run through Connecticut Children's Healthy Homes called Building for Health. Um, It's a one-touch program where when we're in the home and we're talking to the family, or now we're on the phone, uh, we can refer these, make these referrals behind the scenes. So if someone mentions during the period of the visit that they have an issue with asthma medication, then we can make a referral to putting on airs. So again, referring to our program not only gets you an opportunity to take advantage of the direct resources available to make homes safe and healthy, but we can also make referrals to other programs. So here's how to refer. Uh, The link is there, and that'll get right to the application page on the Mm -hmm. website. It's a very simple application because the application is actually what we call a pre-application so once we get the information and again we give it a scoring and a ranking we pull together all the documentation we need and then we ask for the additional documentation that'll be required to actually get to a contract to make the home life safe and healthy Uh, we also can provide a a copy of our application we have brochures we can hand out to different practices as well and then we could also have people refer them to me Uh, as the program manager i'm happy to take referrals get them set up with the right person. One of the things we did a number of years ago is we decided that as we were getting more referrals from practices and internally from the hospital, we decided that we needed to treat those those applications as a priority. So we did establish that there would be a certain point value assigned to every application. So it'll get handled as a priority. Um, And I should mention that the program itself is a very generous program. The grant period that is required is only three years. And after the grant period ends, the money, any money we spent on the construction it was part of that contract is forgiven. So it's a tremendous program for any property owner to take advantage of. Here's some additional resources I want to mention. Um, again, at the top there, the Putting on Airs program. It's a fantastic program through the Connecticut Department of Public Health. It helps with asthma management. It's an in-home visit. They've also pivoted to phone and Zoom. So we'd be happy to uh, have you take advantage of that link. Also within uh, the Connecticut Health and Development Institute education practices modules. There are two modules. One's related to lead poisoning prevention, and the other one's related to making a home safe and healthy. So that's a great way to uh, bring this type of information into your practice. And lastly, I would say down there that we did do a blog uh, two months ago, and it discusses some of the things I'm talking about today. Ways that we've been able to pivot and make the home still make make our program still effective in getting into homes and making them safe and healthy despite the uh, tremendous uh, challenges of COVID. And here's my contact information. And so I, again, appreciate the opportunity to present to you today and look forward to any questions. And I wish you all happy holidays.
0: Thank you, Chris, uh, truly outstanding. And just uh, congratulations on the incredible work that you and your team have done for on behalf of, of children and our citizens uh, uh, taking care of this major problem. So I really, really appreciate it. Uh, well, we move on to questions and uh, uh, we have a, a number of them. So let's begin with uh, the first one, Uh, John, this is for you. Uh, Any guidance on vaccines in pregnant and nursing moms?
1: That's a great question. Um, At the moment, there are no data um, for, let's start with pregnancy. There there are no data for women who are pregnant receiving this vaccine. Um, They haven't done the study yet. I know they're uh, enrolling, but we don't have any data. There's no theoretical reason um, to think that uh, there's a problem. And by the way, one thing I didn't share with you, and this is relevant, uh, Moderna tracked the RNA after they injected it, and it uh, disappears in 24 hours. So it, it just broken apart because it's very, it's very um, fragile. And then the peak antigen when your ribosomes are making that spike protein peaks at 48 hours, and then the antigen's gone at 72 hours. So uh, you know, with the RNA disappearing so fast, um, you know, I don't think it's going to get to the fetus, but we don't have any data. And and um, the other hand, women who are pregnant have more likelihood of being in the ICU and getting very sick. So each woman really needs to consult with their healthcare provider and make an individual risk benefit assessment about getting immunized or not. Um, and that's kind of where we are with that. Now, Breastfeeding, to me, um, uh, there are no data as well giving the vaccine to breastfeeding women, but theoretically, I would think it might be good, actually, for um, a woman to be immunized, make antibodies, and maybe there'd be some IgA that would get in the breast milk. But I don't see any theoretical contraindication to um, breastfeeding after being immunized, like the flu shot but I don't have any data and there are no data. Um, uh, So that's kind of where we We leave it. And each person's gonna need to make an individual decision with their healthcare provider, their OBGYN doc to figure out whether they wanna get the vaccine or not.
0: Uh, Chris, for you, uh, is this the the Healthy Homes Program is the Healthy Home Program open to all Connecticut families and can school nurses make a referral if if they identify a family who might benefit?
2: Absolutely. Yes. Again, back in 2019, we received a grant directly from the Department of Housing, which allows us to cover the entire entire state of Connecticut. And the good news actually is we received a grant just this year in 2020, uh, $4.5 million from HUD. Those are our two primary sources, HUD and Department of Housing. And that grant also allows us to cover the entire state of Connecticut. So we actually have a double grant opportunity for every property owner. And we would be very happy to work with Connecticut school nurses. I think that's a tremendous opportunity for us to serve more families.
0: Great. Right, thank you. Uh, John from Les Wolkoff, one of our neonatologists. So, so if if a child or patient has had COVID-19 but minimal disease, should they have screening lab work done for the fact uh, for, to look for renal injury?
1: I don't think so yet. It's a great question. I think we need more data uh, and I think we need to study this. I, I think we probably should be enrolling children who've had mild asymptomatic disease and following them and determining an answer to that. So right now, I don't think so. But we need more data, and I'm hopeful uh, that we will have some studies to try to determine if asymptomatic infection in children requires more attention than we're giving it.
0: From uh, also for you, John, from Beth Matt it's uh, the question about uh, uh, thromboembolic prophylaxis. Uh, should should we consider outpatient lovinox during the course of COVID?
1: Um, I would follow uh, what the um, CDC and others are doing for adults. And in general, they're, they're doing VTE prophylaxis for inpatients. That could change, but I would follow what the current recommendations are for any hospitalized COVID patient. But I do think it's something we're gonna to need to study and understand better. For example, if you have a highly obese um, patient who's high risk, had mild disease, was hospitalized for a day and went home, you know, should we um, have some sort of mild thromboembolic prophylaxis. I just don't know. We don't have enough data to answer that. So right now I'd stay with the current recommendations.
0: And uh, the other question is, uh, uh, you know, what, this is uh, once, once again, the states that didn't have a first waiver having it now, Tennessee, looked like from your graph that they had a very low numbers in cases during our peak. Uh, is it a or turn, so to speak?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good point. I think each state's been a little bit different Certainly the upper Midwest, um, you know, the Dakotas never had it. And then they had this gigantic outbreak and, and uh, Tennessee, you know, had some. And now they're in the midst of the enormous surge. I think the East Coast had an early surge and now we have a resurgence. So each part of the country has been a little bit different as the wave of the epidemic has swept the country. I mean, California has really had two horrible um, surges, you know, an original one and now this one that's probably going to exceed the uh, gravity of the first one. Each state's been a little bit
0: different. Uh, Chris, for you, uh, it's a question from Danielle Warren-Diaz from our HIV program. What is the poverty level criteria to be eligible for healthy homes programs?
2: So we actually have two different uh, criteria level. For the HUD program, it's 80% of area median income. And we can provide this type of data that anyone has. We have a fact sheet that tells the exact numbers. So the way it's gauged is by the size of the family, And then also for the Department of Housing grant, which again was the one that allowed us to go statewide, Uh, that one has a more generous, it's 100% of poverty. Um, Again, it's a little hard to really uh, tell you specifically, um, but that program is designed to be a little bit more towards low income and moderate low income families.
0: Thank you, Uh, John, for you, any guidance for uh, talking to people who are convinced that the number of deaths attributed to COVID is highly misleading? that anyone who died with COVID-19 is coded as dying from COVID, whether it's a contributor or not. And uh, and I think this sort of aligns with uh, Dr. Bloomer's uh, comment that that people will post things on social media to get followers. The more followers they have, the more likely they can be called an influencer. The more outrageous the false claims, the more people they have. So sort of a general comment about social media and these kinds of misinformation. Yeah,
1: I mean, you know, uh, I, I think uh, Arthur's comments, it's sad, but true. You know, we have a number of people out there who seem to relish getting attention, perhaps they wouldn't have gotten in the pre internet era um, by just whatever outrageous claim they can make. I, I'm very sobered by the death um, numbers. And I as I said, you know, just I think each person can, can look locally. I mean, in my local area, I just told you, I have 40 people in a nursing home 510 miles from my house have all died within three weeks. I mean, the body bags are there. I don't know how else to convince people and I think all of us, I, I find it very sobering, the sense of denial that's going on with large numbers of people about this because you can just open your eyes, it's everywhere. And there was a great story um, in, in the paper about a shop owner in one of the Dakotas, I think it was South Dakota, who's very conservative and was sort of anti the whole thing. And then four or five people in her very small town passed away, crucial you know, movers and shakers who died of COVID. And she's really become a convert of public health measures and, and uh, you know, has gone online and her shop and the whole nine yards. And I, I think, sadly, unless it seems to touch you and hit you over the head with a two by four, a lot of people are in denial. So uh, that's my answer to that. Just look um, and you will see. Look in your nurse, local nursing homes. Look in... Uh, the obits um, and you will see lots of people dying and it's not motor vehicle accidents being attributed. You don't even need to go close to that. There's so many people in the ICUs, you know, maybe we should establish some sort of tour guides for people to tour ICUs, get them in PPEs and, uh, and they can tour the ICUs. I, I don't think they see it on TV and I don't think it really hits home when they see a nurse cry. Um, and watching 10 people die that day. I, I don't think it hits home to see that. Maybe we should be giving tours. I don't, I don't have a full answer for this.
0: Yeah, it's, uh, it's just astonishing in so many ways. Uh, Chris, a uh, question about uh, from Healthy Homes. Any help available for renters and if the landlord is not cooperative?
2: Now, that's always one of our challenges. I always say the best projects go forward where there's a good relationship with the, the, uh, the owner and the occupant. Um, i had one situation where i was told the property owner you need to get this information from your tenants and this question to me was how do i get a hold of them and i just looked at him like and shook my head like i i don't know how to answer that um so the good news again is this program any property owner in the state of connecticut benefits from this program it's a tremendous amount of resources so i'll just give you a number if you have a three-family home will provide up to $34,500 in lead safe work and $15,000 in healthy homes work. So for example, the other day I signed a contract with a property owner as a three family home. And I think it was $26,800 in lead and $11,000 towards healthy homes. I mean, and this is money that's forgiven after three years. And if you're an owner occupied property, if you own the property in either single family or you rent out up to three units, there's no fee to participate and the money's forgiven after three years. So one of the pieces of good news is my relocation education coordinators, they're really good at talking to people, and they're really good at talking to property owners and tenants. So I would encourage people to, the applicant can come from, or the referral can come from the tenant, and give us a chance to talk to the property owner and sell them on the program.
0: So Chris, sort of follow-up to that. um, Somebody said I might have missed it, uh, but how can we refer the Healthy Homes Program from primary care? So, handbook. again, the
2: link through the website would be one of the best ways, um, and then we can also send out, I believe we would probably be able to uh, send out a copy of the application to people that are interested. And we can also, again, I'd be happy to bring in materials into the different practices. You can contact me. We have brochures, and we can include uh, a copy of the pre-application. And in 2021, my goal is to have the program have an o- online application process.
0: Great. Thank you. Uh, John, there are a couple, I'm going to mix some of the questions, and uh, two, two, uh, two questions. One, vaccine indications for prior, with a prior history of COVID-19, uh, yes or no, when? That's the first question. Uh, and the related question, should we, should people have antibody testing before the vaccine? Um, it, you know, sort of related questions. So if you can comment on those two.
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the um, it's a good question. The Pfizer vaccine gave it, regardless of whether there's a history of COVID, they just gave it to you know, 20,000 in each arm. And so it didn't seem to matter. And I would I would say that's what we need to be doing. I would just immunize regardless of COVID history. Now that said, um, if you've had COVID and you know, three weeks ago, I probably wouldn't get immunized. You're probably immune. And there's this 90-day fade-off with natural infection. So I think it depends on your medical center, but we we should immunize those who've got a past history of COVID because we don't, we're not sure how long immunity lasts. And it looks like the vaccine immunity lasts pretty well. And um, I probably wouldn't immunize immediately if you've just had COVID. I would probably wait. You're going to be protected for 90 days. Now, I don't think there's any indication to get antibody titers. I've just mentioned, I, I think if you've got pre-existing antibodies and the Pfizer study looked and they had lots of people, some people with pre-existing antibodies who got the vaccine without problems. So I don't think we, we would do it. Now, there's one patient group where I think ultimately we probably will get antibodies and those might be immunosuppressed we are immunized and we're concerned that the vaccine may not generate as, as uh, good an antibody titers as it might in a healthy person. And the antibody titers might be helpful there to know whether your patients are protected. But right now that would be the one niche uh, I, would, I, would, I, I would see. I wouldn't do it um, in any other niche right now.
0: Uh, uh, from Dr. Corcoran, uh, one of our pediatricians. I've been asking my teens who've had COVID to go off oral contraceptives temporarily due to the risk of thrombobolic phenomenon. Does this make sense?
1: I think you know intellectually it makes sense. I, I haven't found any data on that. I think it's a, a very interesting thought. Uh, there's so many studies that need to be done. This may, this study may already be happening. Um, and uh, and I, I think it's common sense recommendation based on the very limited data we have so far. So
0: that's the best I could say on that. Okay, um, a couple of questions about vaccine availability uh, in terms of uh, primary care setting. Um, it, it, the questions are, when, when would primary care pediatricians have vaccine available for them?
1: Uh, Juan, you'll have to help me with this a little bit, but uh, many already do. Uh, if you, they're entering the VAMS program, and uh, you'll you'll see local centers that have vaccine where you can book your appointment. And at Connecticut Children's, we already have a number of uh, primary care physicians who are enrolling through that and are going to be immunized. Um, for other regions, Juan, do you, can you answer that?
0: Uh, yeah, it, it's 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 a moving target. I I, I can I can reassure you that uh, there will be enough vaccine coming into the state of Connecticut over the next four to six weeks that uh, everyone who's a healthcare team member, certainly all the pediatricians, uh, family doctors, uh, and nurses uh, that are even in the school settings. Will be getting the vaccine. Right now, we just had the first wave of vaccines. I think uh, I, I believe something. Uh, I don't know the actual number, but it was you know 15 or 20 thousand doses um, coming in. There'll be more coming in the next week. Uh, there was a miscommunication between Pfizer and the federal government in terms of the numbers of vaccines, but Moderna's coming in. Uh, I, I, What I've heard from the health department is that we will have approximately 400,000 dosages of vaccines here within the next three or four weeks, and all of you will will be able to get vaccinated. Uh, we'll provide more information as uh, it becomes available to all our primary care docs. Very good question.
1: And you know uh, Juan, I'll add to that. Um, yesterday I got a call from a primary care doc who um, got the VAMS email and St. Francis was listed in Connecticut Children's and different sites. And they could pick and choose uh, whichever site they wanted to book their immunization appointment. So that ball is rolling. Um, and I'm, I agree with Juan, I'm totally confident that anybody who wants to get immunized over the next 30 to 60 days will have opportunity to do so in the healthcare provider universe. Yeah,
0: um, Chris, this will be the last question. Is Healthy Homes connected to Epic? Uh,
2: no, at this time we're not connected to Epic, no. Um, Our our program, you know, being a non-clinical program, uh, I don't know that we've had that opportunity to uh, take advantage of that yet.
0: All right, great. And then, then John, the last question for you for both Pfizer and Moderna, uh, any information on uh, prevention of asymptomatic infection?
1: Uh, I showed you the uh, Moderna data. There were preliminary data suggesting they reduced it by 50 percent, did not eliminate it. But it's very small numbers. There were no data presented from the Pfizer vaccine. If they have it, they haven't shown it. Um, And so that's up in the air still. Uh, We will not, we do not know, will not know about transmission, but the Moderna data were promising that there was a pretty big reduction. I do see a question the AstraZeneca adenovirus vaccine, I don't think that's gonna be in our market. um, And there are reasons where a number, giving a live virus will be more difficult in children. I, I think there are a lot of reasons that that vaccine may not take hold. Uh, in the United States to answer that question about the AstraZeneca.
0: Yeah, thank you. So thank you, John and Chris. Uh, we couldn't get to all the questions. A great participation. We had uh, about 215 people today, which is kind of the average now. Uh, all of you who join in uh, Western Connecticut and throughout the country, they're either live or recorded. This has become quite popular. Uh, we will give John a, a break for a Hanukkah and Christmas. Uh, so we will not come back till January 8th. And as I mentioned To you, we'll have Dr. Paul Offit, who uh, from the Children's Hospital Philadelphia, uh, titled "Developing a SARS-CoV-2 Vaccine." Do log in. Uh, He is an incredible speaker uh, who has incredible information, and uh, it's it's an international an uh, international speaker, well-known throughout the world. And so that, that will be for January 8th in the new year. And then on January 5th, we'll have uh, Dr. Scott Canna from uh, the Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh in our Grand Rounds. Uh, the title is Highways to Hell, Mechanism-Based Management in Hyperinflammatory Disorders, which is highly relevant in the Missy time time period. I'm sure he'll bring that in. And so we'll, we'll come back to all of you in uh, 2021. Uh, thank you for participating this year. It's been a... An amazing road uh, with the light at the end of the tunnel with the vaccine. Please stay safe during the holidays. Listen to Dr. Shriver. Do not travel and stay home. And we'll see you again in 2021. Take care. Bye-bye.